let's talk about the whole basis of Musa informs us that we need to make decisions in life and making decisions in life is not as simple as it would seem because often they're factors which give us the sense that we are actually choosing but in fact we're just reacting to certain prompts which would create a similar response in 90% of people. I'll give you an example to this. I'll give you a few examples. The first example is taken from a study conducted in a group of European countries. France, <coughs> Belgium, Holland, Sweden, Denmark. And what they did was they evaluated the population's desire to offer up their organs for to be an organ donor and the difference <coughs> you see in the in the different countries is astonishing for example Denmark 4% of the population were willing to become organ donors whereas in Sweden it was something like 86% so you, you see almost these two groups form. There's one group of countries where they fluctuate between, I think, of those, Sweden is the lowest, 86% to 100%. And then of the other European countries, Denmark, Holland, which is 28%, the UK, which I think is something like 12%, um, and uh, what was the other country? I've forgotten, but also there's like two groups. One, one group was, the highest was 28%, and the others, the lowest was 86%. So it's quite strange, because if you try to t tap into cultural reasons for this difference, it seems, seems a bit absurd, because the cultural milieu isn't that different between the, 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 the different European countries. So they, a person, a person called Dan Ariely, I'm assuming Israeli, speaks with an accent, he did a study and he figured out the reason. It's quite simple. The reason is that in the countries which rated extremely low, the way the organ donor form was phrased was as follows. If you would like to donate your organ, please tick this box. In the countries where there was an overwhelmingly positive response, the form was phrased, if you do not want to donate your organ, tick this box. Mm -hmm. And in both countries, no one ticked the box. So in the European countries where the phrase was, do you want to donate your organ, and you didn't tick the box, so then you wouldn't be an organ donor. Whereas in the other countries, you would be an organ donor. It's kind of a trick. <laughs> so it's quite, it's a, so basically based on that, based on that simple form, creates this social patterning which is so significant in a person's <laughs> life, as it were, or his relations to the afterlife at least. And it's simply because he, whether he, w he won't tick the box, so the question is why. So, so he, he had a theory of why people don't tick the box. And his theory is that it's not because we're lazy and it's difficult to put pen to paper to make that extra tick, but it's a complicated decision. And if stuck with a, a lack of clarity, so we resist, we resist, we just don't decide. Mm -hmm. 
So, so in countries where don't deciding meant you became a donor, you became a donor. When don't deciding meant, I mean, obviously you do make the decision, right? But you, you don't know what to do. So in the frustration, you don't do anything. But by not doing anything, you're actually making a decision. So it's fascinating to the way that that's so significant in such a large portion of the population that little things like that create major trends in society. Another example he gave, which is related, was, it's not quite the same, but it's certainly related, is um, he wanted to subscribe to The Economist, and there were three, three offers for subscription. The one cost, I think it was $75 for an online subscription, $125 for a published subscription, and $125 for a published and online subscription. <laughs> So it was $125 both just for the published uh, subscription or for the published and the net. So he thought that was quite strange and he phoned up the economist to try to find out what was it what was all about and they said no, it was a mistake and they took out the middle option. But he as an experiment tried it with his students and when he did it with the three options, so 86% of people chose the option of subscription and web, the $125 option, and something like 20% chose or 30% chose the other option of just the online subscription. When he took out the middle option, the bad option, so then way more people chose, 64% chose online subscription alone. <laughs> so he said that by introducing a bad option completely <coughs> makes people make different decisions. He did another example, and you see how obscene it becomes. Another example was that he offered three, two options initially of European tours. The one was Rome and the one was Paris. And they were all pretty much pretty similar, all-inclusive, staying in hotels. And then there was a kind of a, a equal predisposition towards both Rome and Paris. Then he added in the third option. Rome without coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning, the same tour in Rome with coffee, and then the same tour in Rome without coffee. And without coffee, it was um, the price of the Rome tour was slightly, slightly less, but there was a worse option. So you could have Rome with coffee, or Rome without coffee, or Paris. And people went, of course, for Rome with coffee. <laughs> that means in the morning you can have a coffee. So even such an absolutely trivial detail actually created people's... Now, I've, I, what I find fascinating is trying to, in terms of uh, in working on yourself, trying to trace the origins of why people would make decisions in those ways. So, Rabbi Shol tells the following story, and I think this is crucial for understanding of the subtlety of the functioning of self and how, where we have to be, and then we'll explore a variety of different models. Rabbi Shol tells the, it's told Rabbi Shol, he said in himself, that he was planning to go to England in order to, I'm assuming, to teach and to spread the Muslim movement, and he decided against it. And the reason why he decided against it is because he concluded that the reason why he was going to England was to buy a new umbrella. <laughs> Obviously, England being a place where rain is the natural is a national pastime, so they make fantastic umbrellas. And Yerbisrael 
realized as follows. It's not that he thought, I'm going to England to buy an umbrella. He thought, I'm going to England to be married to Torah. And I'm going to England to spread the Muslim. And I'm going to England. And he had a thousand reasons why he's going to England. And then he thought to himself, why are you thinking about all the other things? But you know what? Why am they buying an umbrella? And when he cut that thought, he understood that that tiny little trivial detail was far more significant in the way he formed his decision than perhaps other factors. So that's called a person who's awake to his own internal biases and has the capacity to find out where his decision-making process is going astray. Yes, Giddy? Schrodinger came at the end of Sequentially, I'm not sure when the thought popped into his mind, but the fact that the thought popped into his mind as an aside, correct? It wasn't that, okay, I mean, let's go to England because I want to buy an umbrella. It was, going to England. Then, then, then he caught himself thinking, you know, I'll buy a new umbrella. And he immediately suspected that that was the reason he was going. So you see the weight, the weight of trivial details in huge decisions. Huge decisions. Huge decisions. And these studies kind of confirm that. That people make decisions based on ridiculous variables. Yes, Mark. So the natural question is, how do you discover them? Oh, so how do you discover them? So I would like to just do, before we go into the discovery process, let's just deal with the problem. The problem starts off, as Rav Desla points out, the problem starts off is that interest is created by want. I'm interested in something because I want, I have a relationship, there's a world, there's a rotson related to it. A person that looks up, if it's mutter to play chess on Shabbos, so he has a vested interest in that answer, he wants to play chess. No one looks up the Shulchan Aruch, who has no interest in playing chess, should I play chess on Shabbos? The minute you engage in a question, you already are predisposed to the answer that you want to come out. So every point of interest begins already with a bias in a particular direction. That's extremely problematic. Yes. I just said, it seems that your description, it's more that you begin with the desire. Correct. That you want a particular outcome that may be the case, but it's really that desire that you have. You want to play Absolutely. Chess, right? Absolutely. So, I so therefore, I your capacity to evaluate the information yeah. is already under criticism. In other mm -hmm. words, in order to weigh up something, you have to, before you start the weighing process, fix, make sure the scales are correct. Right. The scales are imbalanced, so any process of weighing thereafter will be false. So if you already now have a, an unjust, a, a distorted scale, and now you're going to engage in the question, so you're not going to come out with the right answer, because you don't have the measurement faculty to do so. So if it was not Shabbos, and you said to yourself, oh, you know, Shabbos, I may want to play... play no different, no different, no different. If someone came to ask you the question, and you do not play chess, and you do not like the game, yeah. and then you investigate the question, then you could be objective. Mm -hmm. Which is seemingly there's no... This is, of course, why one would think that reality is very hard to come by. Because everything becomes a construct of our world. Let me take that a little bit further. A little bit further in relation to last week's pastor. There was a person called Kerach. Kerach was no fool. The Lashon of Rashi, Rashi's language suggests Kerach Pikeach Kerach was wise. 
So why does Koyach all of a sudden decide to jeopardize his status and seemingly blinded by something goes to override the authority of Moshe Rabbeinu. Now the authority of Moshe Rabbeinu was so well established that at Har Sinai the verse records HaKadosh Baruch saying and also knew they will believe forever. Moshe Rabbeinu was a trusted prophet because HaKadosh Baruch himself legitimized his prophecy and the entire Jewish people witnessed it because they heard the voice that Moshe Rabbeinu was speaking on his behalf speaking personally to them there was no higher authority than Moshe Rabbeinu and his authority was never doubted by anyone especially after Matan Torah so how is it possible that Korach could have gone against that authority and said that no Moshe Rabbeinu is wrong and I want to uproot his leadership of Kali Israel it's a problem. It's a huge problem. If it would be some type of un- non-thinking, lowly individual, perhaps it would be slightly easier to justify. But he was a ranking Levite. He was a Choshev Amench. Very, very elevated in his status. Why? 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 So if you read through the Rashis, there seem to be a series of clues which indicate to what may have occurred. Rashi says that there was a um, power struggle for who is going to be the leader of the tribe of Kahas. One of the one of the branches of the Levi families is called Kahas, and there was a question as to who would be the leader of Kahas, who would be the Nasi. And according to the hierarchy of age, so. Korach's father Yitzar was older than Elitzafan's father Uziel. So rightfully, one would think that Korach should have been the person in line for the leadership of this particular tribe. Instead, his cousin Elitzafan was appointed above him. This seems to have been the catalyst that created the entire rebellion of Korach. What happened? He saw Elitzafan being appointed as the prince of the tribe of Gaz, as the Nasi. That awoke within him a sense of jealousy. That sense of jealousy then created a paradigm, a way of seeing things, a theory and a philosophy. The philosophy was leadership for the Jewish people is an unfound necessity. Leadership for the Jewish people is unnecessary, and Ha'am, Shekulam Kedoshim, a nation who are totally pure, why do they need a leader? Just like as a garment which is completely treless turquoise, need not have. According to Kirch, he's wrong, but his suggestion was if you have a, even though there's a, a requirement for you to have a turquoise string on your tzitzis, nevertheless, says Korach, if your garment is turquoise, why do you need it? The whole purpose of the turquoise system is to awaken your memory to the fact that there's the sea. And the sea will remind you of the heavens, the heavens will remind you of Hashem. But 
if you already have that because you've got a, a blue garment, so it's not necessary, or a house which is filled with scrolls, why do you need a mezuzah? And so too, the Jewish people who are all holy, they have it within them, why do they need a leader? That entire theory was born because he couldn't stomach the fact that someone, that a position that he wanted was taken away from him. And then he justified the decision by looking down through his spiritual insight, his Ruch HaKodesh, into his generations, and he saw that the Samuel the prophet Shmuel Nabi was descended from him. So he thought, well, if I have such righteous descendants, surely my opposition to Moshe Rabbeinu is legitimate, and that's what creates the blindness. And then he went ahead and he rose up against Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses' authority. So now Ravalbi plots the causal connection between what occurred there. He says, in any given action, we have to suspect that the following model has occurred. The model goes as follows. There's an event. Step one. Step two. The event awakens a midder, a character trait, an emotion. Step three. That emotion creates within our brains, generates a thought process which can sustain that emotion, which can view reality in the light of that emotion. <coughs> that emotion has the power to influence our thinking until we have to think in a world. We have to create a reality which is consistent with that emotion. Then the, that, 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 that system that we create intellectually looks for some type of external proof, which then leads to the act. Koyach, the event, was the appointment of Elitzafan. That awoke a middle of jealousy, a trait of jealousy. That created a system of thought whereby jealousy would need him either to be a lead himself, which he couldn't be. So he had to delegitimize the leadership of Elitzafan. So he had to create a system of thought where leadership in itself was wrong. A proof was brought to him by the fact that he must be righteous, otherwise why would he have these descendants? And therefore he felt legitimate in engaging in a blind, once a person steps back from the situation, attack on Moshe Rabbeinu's leadership. Now once you have that model at your disposal, it starts to become an interesting indication of how much of our life and how much of the decisions we may make and how much of what we pursue in everyday existence is really because of little events, perhaps trivial events, which occurred throughout our life, which then awoke within us certain myths, which then created paradigms, which then become the conceptual cages in which we are trapped. Yes? So, uh, an Adam Godology would have another way, it would go mind and then emotions. So now that's very interesting. So this model paints the person in a reactive state. In other words, we paint human functioning as a response to events which have occurred. And we label the thought process as a consequence of an event. And thus, the sequence is event, meta thought, action, provided the thought has some connection to reality. In that model of humanity, so then obviously 
there's no room for objectivity and everyone becomes trapped in their own little illusory and illusionary world. Are you following me? Ah, so that's a good question. What happens if a person by an event is prompted to do an act of kindness which then awakens within him kindness which then creates a whole system of thought which then leads to an action surely that's also good that's something that we have to consider but before we do so let us return back to the book that we are studying which is known as Silat Yesharem a person who is Yashar which means straight part of, the, part of the straight straight means that you don't deviate from a certain line whereas if this type of thinking would create radical deviations from any given line because it's completely up to the events and the internal state of being that you are so what is it how could we correct or align ourselves with a external reality now obviously the only objective external reality that we could align ourselves with would be some type of system which is not prone to change and creates or describes a consistent description of events and the way reality occurs or what we had called Torah. Torah is the description of the world as an objective reality. Certain things are good, certain things are bad, certain things will assist you, certain things will destroy you and regardless of your own internal model of what you perceive is right and wrong there's something external to yourself which can evaluate the objective merit of the decisions you make and the goal that we have in this world of the study of Torah and the adherence to mitzvahs is to create an alignment to that objective reality whereby we become, as it were, part of a reality and not of a dream world. And that alignment is both complicated but, ironically, can be extremely liberating. Okay, how does that work? In other words, as we present it now, it seems quite strange. It seems that there is an external reality and we have to fit ourselves into the exter that external reality. Our natural predisposition is not to do so. Our natural predisposition is to fashion the world according to our own subjective reactions to events which have occurred. And we say no. We disagree with this internally and we say there is an objective way of the right manner of conduct. Are you all following me? Um, hopefully it will get less vague as time goes on. Let me try to illustrate it. In the case of Koyach, the objective reality, the right thing to do, 
would have been to retract from his opposition to Moshe Rabbeinu. But in his self-constructed reality, he felt that he was doing what was right and good because he was fighting for the rights of the people to oppose an unjust leader. So how was he meant to spot his fault? How was he meant to align himself to the leadership of Moshe Rabbeinu? How could he adjust his paradigm to see that there was something which was completely wrong about the way he was going about in his world? Do you understand? The, do you understand the so, okay, one second. So that's really what Korach becomes the parable for, for us in our lives and decisions we make in what we do how much of what we do doing is a manifestation of some type of inner desire and how much of what we're doing is in fact a pursuit of aligning ourselves to the Torah's definition of reality the Torah's definition of what we should be doing very hard to know. Um, the altar of Kelm therefore suggests an interesting exercise which it would be quite interesting to to engage in but very dangerous if you don't have a strong sense of self. The altar of Kelm suggests that a person should do this approximately once a month in order to gain a level of, of objectivity in regard to himself. says that once a month a person should sit down and contemplate, review, do a little bit of self-reckoning in terms of the decisions he's presently manifesting in his life, the decisions that he's made and the things that he's doing and the job that he's working at and the friends that he has and the way he's conducting himself and he should look at the good things he's doing, what he appears, what he appreciates to be good, and he should completely invalidate them, mevatel and postal them. He should say whatever he's doing, he should find, look for proof that his entire, what he perceives as contribution to society is faulted, and every good thing he's doing is in fact completely wrong and bad. He should prove that it's absolutely unjustifiable the way he's behaving in the good things he's doing. The motivations for it or the actual outcome? Yes, From beginning till end. Because if you're giving tzedakah for the wrong reasons, I mean, you could find the bad motivation, but how are you going to just, how are you going to try and levatil the actual, the action? Do you want me to do it for you? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So give me an example, Daniel King. So you help women a lot. You're helping, you're helping, uh, some, you're helping someone, you do food packing. You, you do food packing. Yeah. Food packing for matzahs. How could, okay, forget it. So you, 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 go, you go and you help your sister food packing, you go and you help pack packages for, for poor people. How can there be anything wrong with that? How can you, you can say perhaps my intention isn't right, but how can that be objectively wrong? So I'll show you how it can be objectively wrong. What it can do is it could be destroying you as a person. Because? 
Because what happens is that when you go and you pack those food packages, you feel that you are so powerful. You feel that, <laughs> look what I'm doing for these underprivileged, these unfortunate individuals. It's so sad and I'm so good. Mm. What you're doing is, you're accentuating one of the worst traits a person could possess, which is called gaiva or arrogance, and you're making it much stronger. You're creating a far greater distance between you and that poor person, and you're saying, don't worry buddy, I'm going to help you out. Yes, big me can give you my pity. <laughs> yeah, my, my instant response, I, I, I shouldn't just like, I should think on that, but my instant response would be, yeah, so then I'm evoking my own growth for their benefit. That's a good thing, objectively. But you're not, you're destroying yourself in the process. Man, but they're getting the food. There'll be other people that will go and pack the food, don't you worry. That food will get packed. That food will get packed. Daniel, your example, one okay. second, your example. Giving Sadaka to a beggar. Giving Sadaka to a beggar, big problem, so big one, problem. One extra shekel they wouldn't have gotten that day. Well, they wouldn't have got the extra shekel. You have no idea what they're doing with the extra shekel. They could be misspending it, they could be buying drugs, they could be doing something else. And there's a person that's real, in real need that that extra shekel could do him a lot of good. But you have no way of knowing who, who that is. Uh, you can find out. If you want to people who I know who are really needy, come to me and I'll give you addresses and names, or I won't give you their names and addresses. I'll say to you, trust me, I know a person that the telephone's been shut off, the electricity's been shut off. There's a, there's a person I know that they, 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 don't, they can only have incoming calls because their phone's gone. So I know that they are in real need. There's a person I know that when they were at the store with my wife, they looked at her and they, and they said to her, Wow, you buying potatoes. There are people who are in desperate need, and we know who they are. And it could be that the people that happen to be circulating around are the worst people in the world, and you're doing a grave avera by giving them money. Possibly. Hey? But I'm just, I'm just, again, I'm not saying this is the reality. I'm saying any good thing you're doing, I can find a reason why it's the worst thing in the world for you to be doing. So, so give me another example. So, I'm just One second, yeah, well, let's just get Bitbull's learning in Yeshiva. <laughs> learning in Yeshiva. <laughs> Bitbull, Bitbull. Uh, Golden. This is, um, <laughs> <coughs> this is clearly the worst thing you've ever done. Mm. <laughs> um, so it could be a little bit sensitive to discuss this particular issue. Um, Mr. X. Yeah, this, this could be very badly taken out of context. You have to know to tread carefully because in regard to studying yeshiva, there's a lot of other factors which push and pull us in all different types of directions. So I'm going to put you on hold for one second and I'm going to fetch Mark's question. Okay, so it seems that in terms of trying to find something to bottle the, the goodness, it just is finding a weakness. Daniel's question was his motivation. It doesn't really matter. We just have to find that sort of weakness that will then, in effect, make that right. good deed into something that is not so good, what or may ultimately absolutely into correct. In other else. words, the point that I'm trying to make is that by annulling what you're doing, it becomes a decision to do it. Mm -hmm. Be before you've annulled it. You don't do it because of decision. You do it because you want to. The minute you want to do something, there's no two possibilities. The minute there are no two possibilities, you could easily be in working in a world which is self-constructed. 
because the world of midot of traits of wants and desires only ever have one facet to them if a person wants something it's I want this you don't say I want this or that unless you have two conflicting wills but there's never ever a weighing up in the rational realm as to the merit of the deed in midas there are no two stodim there are no two sides when it comes to traits to emotions this is what I need the minute you destroy it as a possibility that creates puts it out of the emotional realm and put into the cognitive realm and you can think about okay one second what you said about what I'm doing makes me think so Tucker maybe I should not be wasting my time packing food for Yad Eliezer maybe I should be doing other things how can I do and then you start to think and then you'll say no the reason why you're being approved or the reason and then it's no longer in the world of Ritzonis and Medes it's going in a different place and that's what we're going to have to continue discussing is how to move the decision making process process from the emotive to the cognitive in doing so we may not be guaranteed of living in aligned to a total reality but at least we have a chance of doing so before we've engaged in the process we don't even have a chance of going through David's will <laughs> once you've torn yourself apart for what you think you're doing right <laughs> how, do you, how do you reconcile that to actually in other words so you are it's an emotional thing because once you've torn yourself down and now you're going to try and look for reasons to why you should do that and you can think about it how do you know then you're not going to take your once again and impose them on what you've just broken down how do you keep it completely absolutely so again we, 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 we can't there's an interesting line in, in, in the Ramchal in, in the end of um, chapter chapter 4 or is it 3 um, let's see There we go, sorry, the end of chapter 2. The end of chapter 2, he says, an interesting point. He says, Uposhutu, it's obvious that even if a person would be aware of himself and be conscious of the decisions he's making, he still would not have the capacity to come to the right decision consistently because he says he calls it the Yetzirah we'll call it because the different traits <coughs> inside of us are so powerful and they mold our mind in such a potent fashion that objectivity seems inaccessible from a purely rational perspective from a natural perspective and that's why he says that there's a certain element and this is interesting that that engaging in that thought process is the stepping stone to spiritual connection because the minute a person engages and tries to evaluate and does his best efforts to make that conscious decision he receives assistance from above to hone in on the right decision however if he neglects the decision making process and he says I'll just follow my heart so then he loses that access to the spiritual world now I don't exactly know how to frame this but I would suggest as follows that the movement from the emotional realm to the cognitive realm is in itself an elevation of a person's being you yourself you're, you're already starting to 
get closer to the world of spirituality. In doing so, by getting there, so Kodesh as it were, completes the process and he lifts you up slightly higher to give you true access into the truth or reality. Okay, one more question. Okay, so is you're talking about that you going from the emotive to the, the cognitive. It seems that that struggle to try to figure out it's it certainly you're looking for a weakness, but then you come back and say, well, you know, maybe it was a good thing, and that's that struggle. That's, that's weighing up the two sides right. is the crucial part. That's, so that's, that's, that's how you actually can work against your your predisposed desires. That you Absolutely. you have this Absolutely. cognitive battle. Absolutely. Well, I do once a month. <laughs>